ask me why I'm always teasing you. You hate to have me call you pretty baby. Whether you like it or not, there's going to be a big change around here, and it starts tonight. Hello everyone and welcome to the Queens and Rebels history podcast that mostly talks about women. Yay! <laughs> so I know I mentioned I will potentially have a guest on this episode, but the guest will appear on the next and final concluding episode to this mini-series. And just so you're not expecting some kind of a celebrity, it's going to be a friend of mine. Also, if my previous recording sounded a bit off and not at its best, it's because it was, and so was I. I was pretty worn out by work. But for today, I am refreshed, and I am back, and I'm ready to do this, so hopefully so are you. In my other news, exciting news, I got my second vaccine that I'm very happy with. It did knock me out for a day, which is fine. I just uh, pretty much uh, slept through the whole 24 hours. And uh, while I was getting the vaccine, I got some entertainment. There was a guy who showed up screaming about how vaccines are poison and how a god will cure you. So that was some uh, dramatic theater to go along with my dose. It was happening as an outdoor community pop-up. I was actually scheduled for a later date, uh, which I've now canceled um, because I walked by this event and decided why not uh, just uh, get jabbed and get it over with. Oh, and I've also discovered that my cat has a nemesis in the neighborhood. It's another tabby black cat that lives at the opposite end of the street. And when they run into each other, my docile kitty turns into some kind of growling monster and I always get in in between the crossfire because I have to pick him up and carry him away. I don't actually want him to start the cat fight. Uh, so um, as of currently, my torso is scratched and uh, so is uh, my uh, left cheek. To be fair, it's a very tiny scratch and no one can see it probably. So... <laughs> But uh, there is a lot to talk about, so I uh, don't want to chit-chat too much. Uh, before I begin, a reminder, my sources are always listed in the description of the episode. So let's just jump right in. As previously mentioned, in a part two of this episode, sodomy was decriminalized under the new Soviet criminal code. Sodomy is not exclusively defined as uh, homosexual relations, uh, but of course anti-sodomy laws were famously invoked to punish uh, same-sex relationships. It was uh, most likely not due to some kind of proactive uh, friendly queer agenda on the Soviet part, but 
due to an attempt uh, to uh, get rid of obsolete uh, Tsarist laws, archives from a People's Commissariat of Justice did not give a detailed discussion behind uh, the decision to revoke the law, but uh, reveal an intent to decriminalize non-reproductive sexual acts between consenting adults makes sense. Kozlovsky, a person responsible for the draft of a newly revised criminal code, understood that the main goal of this revision was secularization. Kozlovsky's draft was further modernized by the removal of archaic language. For example, sexual assault was previously referred to as assault on female honor. Gender neutrality was introduced, meaning both gay men and women could now be persecuted under mentions of illegal sexual acts compared to prior legal language that mainly focused on persecuting men. Again, consenting acts between adults were legal, but laws do mention a quote-unquote unnatural vice. Article 153, for example, prohibited homosexual acts accompanied by physical or mental violence. And Article 167 and 168, in particular, evoked legal protection of minors. Those were defined kids under 14 from a quote-unquote perverted intercourse, uh, specifically defined as non-heterosexual. Otherwise, it seemed like consenting adults were finally free to live their lives. This was significant as the Soviet Union became the second European power, France being the first, to decriminalize homosexuality. The Soviet government's official stance on homosexuality was ambiguous. The government was uh, preoccupied with establishing order and authority in industrializing the society and laying out the new socialist uh, foundations. It was the chaotic time, and I think any thoughts of uh, homosexuality uh, were on the back burner. Uh, but just because laws got more progressive, and this doesn't mean that attitudes did, a long ingrained bias was still there, and I wanted to highlight this. Police could no longer persecute, uh, but doctors could still diagnose uh, something that was viewed as deviancy. The new criminal code gave the medical community further authority to regulate sexuality and gender identity, and the medical community jumped on this chance to claim homosexuality as something that should be regulated under their domain. It was no longer a crime, but as far as attitudes were concerned, it still fell outside of acceptable behavior. The new secular outlook attempted to rationalize and strip homosexuality of its religious stigma, of a stigma of religious morality, but instead to uh, process it logically and in terms of medical terms, 
Thus, it went from being a sin to being a disorder, and uh, people were moved uh, from a prison to a clinical setting. Now, I want to point out uh, that the medical community uh, did not uh, police a homosexual behavior, but the uh, discourse on the topic uh, mostly came from the medical community that uh, was interested in finding the reason behind uh, homosexuality or uh, non-conforming gender identity and was very eager to study it. One psychologist sums up the 1922 attitudes as follows, I quote, Doctors look upon homosexuals as unfortunate stepchildren of fate, but they in no way can be considered ill-intentioned, debauched people, offending public morality, and therefore the term perversion and not perversity or even less so debauchery is used to designate this pathological condition, unquote. The medical field jumped into examining sexual and gender diversity with previously unseen vigor. A person simply known as J.R. published an article uh, called Trials of Homosexuals, describing how homosexuality could still be punished under the new framework by featuring two cases, uh, first being a woman who married her girlfriend and successfully argued against a prosecutor's attempt to invalidate the union, the second case being an all-male gay party held in a private flat that was broken up by the police. And the unknown author suggests that the first case is, was to be charged under hooliganism and the second under brothel keeping. Psychiatrists were not willing to share their newfound authority on the subject with the police and were quick to shut down the article with their own assertion of authority over the subject. The article itself was not terribly influential, but it highlighted the chaotic struggle to repress a non-heterosexual behavior. Not all attitudes were pervadingly negative. Some regarded that the criminalization of homosexuality as a natural progression of a revolution. During his 1923 visit to Berlin, Health Commissar Semashko stated that legalization of same-sex love was a deliberate measure of emancipation. One journal noted that Semashko, I quote, explained that no unhappy consequences of any kind whatsoever have resulted from the elimination of the offending paragraph, referring to the sodomy article, unquote. This was the most positive viewpoint publicly stated by a Soviet official, and it was omitted from the Soviet media, actually. Semashko uh, was not alone in his attitude. In 1925, a young Bolshevik called Grigory Batkis 
published a German language pamphlet he distributed in Berlin called uh, The Sexual Revolution in Russia. In this pamphlet, Batkis um, stated that homosexuality was uh, treated as a private matter and was to be treated in the same way as a quote-unquote natural intercourse. Later, Batkis, alongside a Ukrainian professor and Alexander Kolontai, uh, who was the Bolsheviks party's spokesperson on sexuality, attended a, a conference of the World League for Sexual Reform, receiving praise for a Soviet stance on homosexuality and giving it an outwardly air of official approval. In reality, Alexandra Kolontai's ideas faced internal party opposition, in 1923, a series of articles denounced her promotion of free love and bourgeois feminism. Uh, sympathetic views towards homosexuality were expressed in the context of a larger international movement. However, inside the Soviet Union, the government did not largely consist of liberal thinkers. Sexuality in general was rationalized and institutionalized. The health commissar Semashko was in very much interested in a newly emerging field of endocrinology, aka the study of how hormones relate to health and behavior. This seeped into psychology, where professionals tried to examine the link between hormones and mental disorders. Soviet scientists uh, were very eager to distinguish themselves from uh, Tsarist predecessors and were eager to gain international prestige through a breakthrough. In January 1921, Protopov jumped on a chance to link endocrinology and homosexuality. This was not a new idea. Uh, the hypothesis was uh, proposed by an Austrian biologist in 1918. Uh, but uh, two contrasting viewpoints emerged, one uh, citing nature uh, being uh, biology, and this uh, was a part of endocrinology, and other citing nurture as a cause for various sexual practices. In 1923, Protopov was installed as a director of the Faculty of Psychiatry at Kharkiv State University, where in 1928 he attempted to support his hypothesis by implanting sex glands into a woman in order to cure her homosexuality. This turned out to be a colossal failure, and he abandoned the topic altogether. Despite this failure, the theory of a homosexuality being caused by hormonal anomaly continued uh, to have its proponents. The same ideas were applied to people who did not conform to traditional gender identities, Despite uh, the fact that queer people existed across time and uh, civilizations and cultures, and the most logical conclusion would be to accept this as a sign that this is the natural norm, scientists still attempted to classify and cure any non-conforming behavior as, um, as otherness. 
some uh, medics rejected that homosexuality was a psychological issue altogether. In Leningrad, a few uh, clinicians tried to identify homosexuality through blood testing. <laughs> I, I know, if, just when you thought it couldn't get more ridiculous, it did. Um, the reasoning was that, I quote, moral level was no lower than that of the majority of healthy heterosexual men, unquote. Um, I cannot even begin to discuss how many things are wrong with that statement. I mean, there is the assumption that mentally ill people are somehow immoral, that heterosexuality is normal, and anything else is not. Uh, like, how do you measure moral levels? But uh, anyways... Basically, this nonsense concluded that, I quote, homosexuality must be viewed as a particular biological imperfection, unquote. In June of 1926, a German sexologist visited the Soviet Union and concluded that Soviet views on sexuality were uh, puritanical and homosexual behavior was viewed as un unproletarian. And in general, psychological studies were be beginning to decline. Legal sexual reform uh, was a part of a larger a cultural revolution that attempted to replace uh, quote-unquote backwardness and bring in views that suited new Soviet ideas. The main battle was waged against the Orthodox Church that held a significant place of authority in the popular imagination. In order to discredit the Church and expose its corruption and depravity, a bunch of homosexual scandals were brought to the public eye. Bolshevik publications attracted public interest with their sex scandal exposés. A series of trials took place against the clergy that allegedly violated minors or unwilling peasants. A corruption of innocence by the priests was a unifying factor in these trials. These attempts to discredit the clergy linked same-sex relationships with abuse of minors, a sexual disease and immorality, which stood in contrast to the average citizen that was not supposed to engage in such behaviors. Uh, this attempt to build a unified Soviet state uh, differed slightly in uh, uh, Caucasus and Central Asia. These regions were viewed as being extremely backwards, and Bolsheviks made the decision to keep a consensual sodomy criminalized due to an assumption that the region was not advanced enough for sexual modernity. Ironically, while same-sex relations were viewed as too modern for places such as Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, the places had a long-established practice of male sex workers called Abachi, and this was not viewed as a part of modernity, but as a sign of backwardness. There was a strict um, hierarchy of civilized societies in Soviet Union, of course, with Russia being at the top of the pyramid, and not surprising as a colonial 
power, they seek to establish cultural dominance while appropriating any aspects of other cultures that were viewed as positive, um, you know, the typical uh, prep. But uh, anyways, uh, these uh, bachi were a part of a long-established practice. Uh, boys would be recruited into brothels or dance uh, troops with their parents' knowledge. Mind you, these uh, boys uh, were often uh, coming from uh, poverty and, of course, uh, there was... Uh, room for a lot of exploitation, um, but Soviet, um, Soviet legislators determined, were determined to eradicate the practice. The Soviet Uzbek Criminal Code of 1926 had the most prohibitive laws against same-sex out of any other Soviet Republic. Homosexuality, male in particular, was grouped with, I quote, survivals of primitive custom. Um, a unique law against harassment of Uzbek males and a specific ban on Bachi, their recruitment and participation in public events, was not found anywhere else except it was later adopted in Turkmenistan, the Soviets were determined to eradicate cultural same-sex practices of Central Asia, uh, which uh, stood in opposition to their claims of sexual advancement. No explanation was made as to why homosexuality was published outside of Slavic countries, uh, where it was already a sexually acceptable uh, practice, one can only deduce that it was not meant to be a part of the new Soviet persona. If the Industrial Revolution thought to transform the economy and countryside, the Cultural Revolution was meant to transform the core of a human being, how a person acted and thought, what they ate and how they dressed. This almost a cookie-cutter image of a proper Soviet individual had no room for people that fell outside of the gender norm. The People's Commissariat of Health attempted to analyze trans and gender non-conforming people as well, based on a previous European case studies, psychologists Krasnushkin and Holzakova proposed a joint theory that trans people could exist independent of homosexuality and were not a product of biology, but rather their environment. In general, Krasnushkin was a big supporter of, of decriminalizing what he referred to as, I quote, harmless sexual deviations. Interest in gender diversity was also undertaken by biologists, most prominently Kultsov, who equated non-cis identities as um, a mental infection. This narrative spread to the military, which had a very strict and clear gender divides. Here, biological women who were masculine or presented as men were more accepted where the feminization of a biological man was viewed as a great threat. Again, misogyny and homophobia slash transphobia are connected, 
um, masculinity was dependable and it strengthened the army um, and the social fabric while femininity was frail and weakened it. One observer noted, I quote, they are women of a masculine appearance, speaking about the army, they wear military uniforms, but one of them was at the time the wife of a man and had children, while, uh, thus while being a commander of the Red Army and occupying a, a rather high command post, she had a family. The other woman did not have a family and was of a more masculinized type. Here, obviously, there was no need to apply special measures. So I think that the decree we are presenting to require expertise in every individual case, uh, it will solve the issue. Uh, so here, uh, the author of this blurb is arguing that masculinized women are not an issue. Uh, some of them uh, could be married and it uh, should be taken on a case-by-case basis. Basis, a similar individualized approach was applied uh, applied to trans individuals who were biologically fe female when it came to marriage. Some exceptions could be granted under medical e examination, while biologically male trans people marrying was viewed as a sign of backwardness and was equated to the bachi boys of Central Asia. Medical practitioners did encounter requests of a sex change, but could not work independently um, of the state. They, of course, did not uh, receive a legal clarification for marriage or uh, surgeries, uh, leaving uh, trans individuals in a uh, legal limbo. During the 1920s, the medical field enjoyed um, an optimistic view of their work. They could engage in a wide, wide range of discussions and hope to bring uh, new discoveries. As the Cultural Revolution and Industrial Revolution came into full swing, the general uh, utopian abstract views gave way to daily pragmatism. The medical field was not exempt from this. Their various interests in theories on sexuality and gender identity were no longer acceptable. In December of 1929, the Commissariat of Health received an official decree to focus on the needs of industrial workers and collective farmers. Commissariat of Health also came under new leadership the field of psychiatry was defunded and all efforts in the field were redirected towards maximizing a worker's output, not developing any new theories. Psychological studies were no longer selected at random, but were planned and prioritized the needs of workers. So pretty much in 1930s, the studies of sexuality gender and any discourse that came out of it pretty much disappeared. Bolsheviks demanded intellectual conformity, otherwise threatening scientists with the label of bourgeois and it threatened their social standing. The Bolsheviks significantly crit criticized those who viewed quote-unquote deviances uh, and mental 
illnesses as being a part of nature, instead of preferring the nurture approach, where a person could be cured through re-education and change of scenery and ready to rejoin the workforce. Theories that homosexuality and transsexuality could be part of a person's biology were abandoned for the belief that their identity was part of their uh, upbringing and could be corrected. In 1931, Osipov's uh, psychiatry textbook painted homosexuality in um, negative terms as socially useless, concluding that the government's soft stance of, uh, on homosexuality was a mistake. The Cultural Revolution's campaign uh, to remove, uh, I quote, social anomalies from the streets further narrowed opportunities for non-hetero, non-binary or trans people. This crusade against anomalies merged with the secret police mission of social cleansing from bourgeois class enemies. Vulnerable groups now could be purged from the streets without being officially charged with a criminal offense. Collectivization and rapid industrial expansion had a huge traumatic impact on society, a mass starvation of millions, a deportation of entire families to gulags, a widespread poverty, disregard for human uh, life, a decline in health and welfare were all the results of the five-year plan. People were dissatisfied with the Communist Party, and in return, the party tightened its grip on power and increased efforts to eliminate opposition and the so-called social anomalies. In September of 1933, the deputy chief of secret police first brought up the recriminalization of sodomy. This was spurred on by an ongoing propaganda war between fascism and communism. The two ideologies constantly clashed and used homophobic rhetoric to attack each other's manliness. While Hitler went on a public homophobic campaign, the Soviets criminalized particularly male homosexuality without public discussion. We uh, are only left guessing uh, to why lesbianism was not yet outlawed or what line of thinking led to revoking the previous legal rights to begin with. From documents published in 1993, we know that the measure was recommended by secret police to Stalin as a matter of state security. Chief Deputy Yagoda wrote that the male homosexuals were guilty of, and I quote, establishing networks of salons, centers, dens, groups, and other organized formations with the eventual transformation of these organizations in outright espionage cells. Activists, using the caste-like exclusivity of their circles for plainly counter-revolutionary aims, had politically demoralized various layers of young men, including young workers, and even attempted to penetrate 
army and navy, unquote. And now, we don't know what on earth he was basing this uh, accusation of uh, espionage on, but Stalin uh, forwarded this letter to a colleague with a note that I quote, these scoundrels must receive exemplary punishment and a corresponding guiding decree must be introduced in our legislation, unquote. Of course, Stalin was famously paranoid um, about uh, gr various groups plotting against him, uh, so this only played into his uh, paranoia. As mentioned before, women were not yet mentioned in this discourse. In March of 1934, the legislative decree was published and was to be viewed as an offense separate to other sex offenses in the code. Stalin's quiet attempt to, to criminalize homosexuality was called out by the European Marxist left, for example, a British communist and editor of Moscow Daily News asked Stalin to provide a justification for discriminating against a harmless group. He called out the move as being anti-socialist for imposing sexual hierarchies in a society where, theoretically, discriminatory hierarchies were supposed to be eliminated. Stalin um, gave a very thoughtful and mature response. Just kidding, he ordered the letter to be archived while calling the author, I quote, an idiot and a degenerate. Classic move for when you don't actually have anything legitimate to argue. Uh, on May 1934, an explanation did eventually appear in the press. And do not expect a good explanation. The argument actually disturbingly mirrors some of Russia's current rhetoric. I guess it should not be that big of a surprise, considering how Putin loves to idealize and whitewash Stalin. Uh, but the argument went as follows. The law was enacted to protect the innocence of youth against a Western degradation. Russia was pure and filled with intellectual energy, while the West was drowning in alcoholism and syphilis. And a famous slogan emerged, I quote, destroy the homosexual and fascism will disappear. On that depressing note, I will conclude part three for today. Next time, we will jump into probably the most depressing time and talk about how homosexuality was treated under Stalin's rule of terror and, of course, briefly conclude what happened afterwards. I mean, it was a very uh, damaging time to how homosexuality and gender identities were viewed and the after effects are still felt to this day, I'm not saying that previously the society was extremely open-minded, but at least there was a, some kind of a public discourse that was happening that was moving towards a labeling homosexuality as harmless and attempting to uh, understand uh, gender identities, of course, it never developed into anything because uh, it uh, was a brief uh, spike of uh, optimism 
uh, that was uh, trampled by the reality of a very tumultuous uh, time. Um, I hope you enjoy uh, this uh, mini-series. I wanted to do it uh, for quite a while, uh, so I'm uh, very excited to talk about the topic. I know it's not uh, a very a typical topic I previously discussed. My pod uh, focused primarily on women. This is a more of a general history. Let me know if you have any thoughts. If you enjoy uh, this podcast, uh, tell a friend. I am horrible with social media. I don't really promote this podcast at all. So I'm really hoping you guys will help me out uh, on this end. And uh, of course, uh, stay healthy, uh, stay safe. And uh, I hope everyone is doing well. I will talk to you soon. Bye, everyone.